Hello, and welcome back to Just Hands. Oh, that's not how we do this. That's not how we do this here. What we do is I say, hi, James, right? Hi, Jack. Yeah, that's it. I'm confused because we do this this podcast called Punt It Off on Solve for Why. Uh, I do it with Matt Hunt. and Saying hi, Matt would be pretty confusing, I think. Yeah, saying hi, Matt would be confusing. But yeah, I forgot about our shtick. Anyways, that's, uh, that's how we do it here. It's not how we do it there, but that's okay because this is here and that's there. And what's here today? Well, that's a good question. And the answer is hands. We have hands here. That's what we have. How does that sound, James? Sounds great. Okay. Well, now that I got your permission, let's talk about a hand. And this hand is not any old hand. It's a listener hand. A hand submitted to us by one of our dear listeners. Uh, and that dear listener submitted a hand to us from Maryland Live, a live poker hand. Where should people go if they want to submit hands to us? You're yeah. one step ahead of me, James. And now I'm... Now we're on the same step, and that step is this. I'm going to give you the place to go to give us hands, and that's the show notes. There'll be a link in the show notes. That's where you go. It's in the show notes. Now that we've established that, out of the hand, as they say. So this is from Maryland Live. It's on a rainy Sunday at 7 p.m., and the room is packed or was packed because of a big high-hand promo and some tournaments. And Maryland Live is known to have some very good high-hand promotions, I will say, uh, both effective in their ability to pack the room and also rather large in their nominal quantity. So Hero is a 26-year-old white male with a hairline that might suggest that he's closer to 30. Well... <laughs> I think I had a dream that like I was going bald last night. I don't know if that's a premonition. Yeah. I, Anyways. Uh, I can empathize with our listener. So we've got a distinguished 26-year-old playing at Maryland Live. Uh, and he is, he's been playing reasonably tight pre-flop and showing aggression post-flop. Has not put in many big bets. Heroes interacting with other players, including the villain. The table isn't particularly talkative. There's only one other player in this pot, and that villain is a young black male with chin scruff, probably 22, who's wearing a styrofoam around the side of the head headphones from the early 2000s and is engrossed in a black or in a plastic covered library book anytime he's not in a hand. Sounds like this guy's pretty hip. Anyways, about a half hour earlier, I caught him triple barreling second pair when I had top pair. I've also seen him triple barrel another bluff. He seems competent and is playing very tight pre-flop and aggressive post-flop. He's a deep stack from a hand where he tank called a three-way all-in with aces. It's not exactly clear why, as both players were already effectively all-in. One still $19 behind. I'll say that this player does not sound particularly competent to me. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't there but triple think, barreling second pair is not a line I'd typically advise unless like, yeah, there, I mean, there are circumstances for it, but um, usually you'll be looking to try and show down that second pair at some point without um, going for that third street. 
<laughs> so I'm just reading a little bit ahead of the description. Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think this is like, I think this is a good example and it's, it's something you might expect from a 22 year old. If this player is 22 uh, and that's that like, they're thinking well, they're not thinking well, they're thinking, but not thinking well. Um, so, you know, has second pair, thinks his hand probably isn't good, decides to bluff. That's a reasonable train of logic, although probably not the best line. And also, like, tinking with aces to ensure or to try and make your hand seem weak while another player is $19 behind. Like, yeah, it's good to get that $19 in the pot when you have aces. That's logical. But it was probably coming in anyway. It's probably not worth uh, wasting everybody's time. So... Villain's nails are not painted a color, but they're extremely shiny. It's likely that he gets manicures. An odd set of priorities for self-care for someone who smells like he's not showered in some time. So I went to school at a place called Oberlin College. And this, this guy seems like he could have gone to school with me. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Hero has about 390 and Villain has Hero covered by about 3x. So Villain opens to $15 from the hijack and Hero pauses briefly to consider sizing. We don't know, I guess that was a standard sizing. So I guess Hero's considering his own sizing. Hero then reads- what, the, what are the blinds here? One, three. Okay. Cool. Hero then raises to 45 from the button. That's off 390 with Jack of Diamonds, Jack of Clubs. And it quickly folds back around to Villain who looked around for a bit and then called comfortably. Anything, anything noteworthy here to you? Not particularly. Um, I think it's good to, I like the three bed of jacks against the hijack open. And um, yeah, sizing seems fine. You could go a little bigger if you want to, but 45 seems fine. Yeah, and I don't think there's anything it's never going to be minus EV, I think, to three-bet jacks here. I get against a player who's playing extremely tight, which I think was the description, or very tight. He's playing very tight preflop. I think you get into more of a case to just call. And I think at 1-3, when you're blinds calling out of position when you have jacks is a pretty plus EV event for you. I think that might shift me towards a call here. Uh, especially if I think villain is a type who will like format me a lot with hands like ace king or ace queen. Uh, just because when we have jacks and we're sort of shifting our opponent into those sets of hands, we're going to see a four bet relatively frequently. And that four bet is almost always going to be bad for us with a hand like jacks that's not going to be very transparent post-flop about how it's doing against that four-bidding range, unless we just know it's really bad, which is also not necessarily a very fun place to be. So I think I would actually probably flat here against this, this opponent at 1-3. Um, I think if the better the players in the blinds, the more likely I am to just call, sorry, or to three-bid. And if I'm in the hijack, sorry, villain is in the hijack, if we're in the cutoff, then I think I'm pretty likely to three bet as well. On the button, I I just have a much more pulled three betting strategy, and tend to just call quite a bit. Any uh, 
Any thoughts there? Am I crazy? Should I just always be three breathing jacks? I don't know. I, I like working in more flats on the button for sure. Um, um, it's kind of nice to have some stronger hands in that button flatting range because we're going to be wanting to flat a lot of weaker hands as well. So it, um, yeah, it's in some way it kind of protects that flatting range. Now that's not to say I, my pole doesn't, it's, I'm not saying that I'm only three betting like ace, king and queens plus. I would definitely three bet a hand like king, queen suited here. But I think that hand is against a tight player is a better three bet than jacks. Because we block a lot of the four bets, queens, kings, ace, king, some ace, queen. And I think we do well against hands like jacks, tens, nines, through a three bet uh, compared to when we just flat. And then I think those hands play pretty well against us post-flop. And we also dominate a lot of the clung range and can fold pretty comfortably to a four bet. Where I think folding to a four bet with jacks is reasonable against an extremely tight player. Uh, I think it's a pretty strong play if you can do it confidently, but it's not the kind of play that we always have a lot of confidence about. So it's not a spot I often look to put myself into. Yeah. And I also want to say like it, like I'm just going, going back a little bit, like the decision to three bet jacks, like, you should probably have some idea of how tight the villain is playing. Like, are they like, is the villain limping a lot of hands? Like, and then looking at showdowns to see what hands a villain has raised. I remember I was playing against an opponent who limped ace queen offsuit recently. And I thought that was pretty noteworthy so that um, like when they're raising they had a pretty strong range um, because ace queen offsuit. Yeah, they're limping ace queen offsuit. Yeah, it's a that's always a good thing to pay attention to. Do people have limp opens, and with what types of hands? All right, so we're heads up going to the flop. We get a good flop for jacks, four of spades, six of spades, nine of clubs. So here, writes villain checked automatically which is impressive. And I took a brief moment before down betting to $25. James, what do you think about a down bet here? I think we want to be going bigger on this flop. Um, we're not really... What size does he bet? Hero bets $25 into, I think, like $90. Yeah. I, I would typically recommend going a little bit bigger um the nine x that the villain may have which may not be too many hands but say ace nine suited nine ten suited nine eight suited could definitely be in there and there are hands that we're doing quite well against and will be pretty inelastic to the sizing um tens is another hand that we're doing quite well against and will be pretty inelastic to the sizing on this street. So um, I think we should be looking to get um, a lot of more value from those hands on the street. And additionally, we don't really want to be floated with a hand uh, by hand like ace king, ace queen, and 
because they have significant equity against our hand. And even though we can check back one street against them, you might be put into some annoying decisions on the river against um, when like an ace, king or queen comes on the turn, we check it back and then we face a big bet on the river. So um, if we can get those hands to fold out now, then we can be more confident in the strength of our hand on those turns as well. Yeah, I think I think the key here is we have to get greedy when we have a strong hand. And greed is not just in the form of the current street, but it's also in the form of future streets. And the greater degree to which you can turn a scare card into a blank is a good thing in terms of our ability to be greedy. And so what are hands that probably don't fold for 25, that probably do fold for, let's say, 60? I think a lot of like jack 10, queen 10, queen jack, king queen with a spade, ace king, ace queen with a spade. These are hands that probably don't fold for 25 and probably shouldn't fold for 25. They might, but I, I don't think they will. They could raise, which can put us in a tough spot. Also, we're not really at a, at a portion of our range, or we don't have a range that like loves getting raised here. So I think choosing a size where we can assume that we're up against a, a more polarized raise, I think is good for our clarity. And yeah, think about this deck. Like, there's not so many great turns, and this is a this is a flop where I think we should be able to get more value in denial than just twenty five dollars worth of it on the flop. And after betting twenty five, it's kind of hard to barrel on a ten queen, king ace, eight, kind of a seven. Def, I mean, definitely a five, a nine, a spade. Not that many. There's not so many great cards for us. Probably like a third of the deck is pretty bearable for us. And I think that if we size up a little bit, then we can, uh, we at least make it easier for us to delay barrel again on the river and get another barrel of value at that point in the hand, which I think is useful. Like we might not, let's say, we might not barrel on a queen. We might not barrel on a king or an ace or a nine, but I think those are, those are really tough cards for us to even bet the river. Um, if we just bet 25 here, I think it's easier if we bet 60 to get another street of value at some point in the hand. And I think what actually happens here is also, it, it also shows maybe another issue with this sizing, which is that, so let me first read uh, what Hero writes about his decision. Here writes, I've been consistently down betting in three bet pots my entire time at this table and wanted to balance my range with some strength as well as try to keep the pot from ballooning when I'm beat since my hand is unlikely to improve. Let's, let's dive into that sentence. So I've been consistently down betting in three bet pots my entire time at this table. 
That's fine. That uh, that might be a very good strategy if this ta- if this in this game, but I don't think uh, at one three. I don't think it's so important for us to balance our range. I think it's more important for us to identify our hands incentives and play to those. And I I don't think your hands incentive is to keep your opponent's range extremely wide here. I think it's actually the opposite. I think it's to condense your opponent's range to mostly bluff catchers and not really speculative hands in order to clean up the deck for us and get value from these hands while the deck or while the board sort of permits us to do so, which is sort of a tenuous proposition. So I I think your incentives sort of contradict the... uh, the idea of wanting to balance balance your range here. And I think uh, as a, a default, balance is fine, but balance should look different on different boards. Balance doesn't mean on every board where I three bet, I down bet. Balance means that in a specific spot, my frequencies are constructed such that my opponent is relatively different to the various decisions that are facing that opponent. And so I think... Uh, I think we just need to both loosen up our sort of deference to balance and also maybe reconsider what balance means in a situation like this. Yeah, I think I think that's all very well put. I just to be like a little bit more explicit and provide an example um, on a board like Ace Nine Deuce. I think it makes a lot of sense to down bet and you'll be doing that with you know bluffs and value a lot of the time like even um even though like you don't necessarily have to be balanced against these opponents um it's just generally a overall it's going to be a good strategy that will work well for you um whereas like a board like six seven ten if we three bet I think it, or a board like this, it makes a lot more sense to use a larger size and to have that be somewhat balanced with um, where we can have some value hands and some bluffs. For sure. I think also this this last part of the reasoning, trying we want to try to keep the pot from ballooning when we're beat since our hand is unlikely to improve. I think that is a really good mindset out of position. But I think that when we're in position in a 1-3 game, we're kind of, we're just missing out on an opportunity to gain a pretty big edge where we can get a big edge from being able to take advantage of the fact that our opponents call too much and play too passively. You can't. Um, what is that? You can't lose the min and win the max. At the you same can't time. lose the min and win the max. You're not beat here very much. But that's important to note. You're you're really not. Your opponent, like yes, sets are possible, but it's not a guarantee. Your opponent calls with fours, sixes. There's probably sixteen combos or close to it of ace queen and. Yeah, there's uh, so much that we would really like to fold. I mean, there's. Queen. Yeah, there's, there's, what, 48 combos of two overcard hands. And 
you might get none of them to fold for $25. That's compared to a maximum of nine combos of sets. And a, a fair number of combinations of probably 9x, like, you know, I, I don't think people fold like Jack 9, 10, 9, 9, 8 suited that often, or Ace 9 to three bets. Yeah, so even if it's just for protection and you think that there's almost no value targets, I still think betting a little bit larger is is worthwhile. So I think we've we've covered this enough. Villain quickly raises to $65, 40 on top. And yeah, I think when we bet $25 into 90, a lot of players just don't think you have much, which is not like if that's the reason you choose this sizing, it's like I want to induce raises from my opponents like marginal value and bluffs. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Let's do it. But that's not the reasoning. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's action plus reasoning, which makes a good poker decision. Like you can, you can luck into the, the right action for the wrong reasons. Um, and you can, there can be multiple right reasons if like you can give compelling and likely to be true uh, reasoning or multiple right actions if you can give good reasoning. Anyway, James, what are you thinking of this raise? What do you think this range looks like? Hmm. It could it can mean a lot of different things from different players. I think it's possible that a set could raise this size, although I would usually expect them to go larger because we could have a hand. We could. We look like we could have an overpair hand, and this is their chance to maximize against that. But they could be feeling pretty safe with that set. I could also see this being some nine X that is trying to gain some protection from Ace King, which is a mm-hmm. common hand that people will put us on. We three bet. Yeah, something something like that. It could be. It could be a flush draw that. Um, is raising because he prefers to play it aggressively and doesn't think our $25 bet um, is very strong. Yeah. I think uh, part of the problem with this trying to induce a raise here is there's just a general lack of clarity because there's a lot of hand classes that could make this raise with varying reasons. It can be a one-pair hand looking for protection. It could be a set that feels comfortable looking for value. It could be a semi-bluff. It could be air. And really, we want, we want to perceive order and exude chaos. We don't want our opponents understanding what's happening from in our range. We want them to be way off. But we want, I think that there's a, there's a big value in being able to accurately perceive what your opponent's range is. And sometimes two actions which maybe yield similar profit on one street, not that profit comes from one street, that's sort, of, that's sort of an oversimplification, but two lines which kind of get similar results on one street in terms of like equity distribution, but one is much more... One is much more predictable. I think typically we want to go a predictable route. It just lets us plan through the hand much more effectively. And it's sort of an acknowledgement that actually profit isn't one on the flop uh, unless your opponent folds. 
and you need to be able to construct uh, strategies across all three streets. Yeah, there is something to be said for clarity when we're we're facing aggressive action from an opponent or passive action. Like if we can have a bet size that gives us some clarity, um, it can be really helpful. Um, even though maybe that shouldn't be the only or primary reason you're betting. If we can, yeah, if we can predict how our opponents will respond to a bet um, more accurately, that's really nice for us um, going forward in the hand. Yeah, it's it's clarity. Or we bet for, if we choose a larger sizing, it's like we, we're getting protection, but we also get clarity. And we also get peace of mind in the sense that like, let's say we bet 65 here ourselves on the swap. And our opponent says, all right, I'm going to float this guy with uh, queen 10 clubs. Not crazy, but probably not a good play. Probably a losing play. And it's fine if we say like, all right, I'm going to check back and always call on like the queen dudes run out. Yeah, the queen 10 like gets to put in like a nice river bet and win some money from us. But they paid a big price for that. Whereas that still kind of has to be a mindset after we bet 25 on the flop. But we, we charge a much worse price for the privilege of queen 10 drawing out on us and getting paid on the river. So I don't know. I think the calculus is just better for us to make strong assumptions about our opponent's range after betting large. That piece of mind comes from saying, like, I gave these hands a bad price, and so I'm not going to think about them because if they played this way, it was already good for my overall strategy. That kind of thing. So I'm assuming we're not folding to the... Nah, we're not folding. To the 40 more. I mean, to be honest, I think there's there's a case for three bet. Yeah. I like it more if if it's not quite so deep. I don't... Yeah, I don't hate three bet. Um, sizing up for like a pot size bet on the turn. Something like that. Just going all in? No, I'm saying um, three betting that will set up a pot size bet to go on the turn, something like that. Or what are? Well, I think that's that's a that would be a very small three bet. Is it? We uh, so if we call, there's going to be two twenty in the pot on the turn, and there's going to be like two ninety in our stacks. Okay. I guess so, we I guess we could we could just go all in. It's um a bit harder to get action from worse hands, but I think it's possible that tens and nine X will call us and like nine X with a spade, you know, that's um that's gonna call us. Um we might we might be close to flipping with a hand like that. I think if we had a little less money back, I would be all for it. Yeah. And I think given that we don't, um, that we have quite a bit back such that if this paying off the sets becomes a little expensive, we still do have like almost 10% against the sets. 
Uh, unless it's like nines with nine of spades and we have a little bit less. Or do we have the jack of spades ourselves? I don't know. Let me check. We don't. But yeah, we, we lose a lot to sets, which uh, makes our denial not as great. And I do think it's a little hard to, to get called by worse. I think in other environments, it can look bluff heavy to shove here and you can get called by like a nine ten tense, but I think it's a little hard here. Even eights. Yeah. Like as soon as like you're perceived to be bluff heavy, then all of a sudden, like I think the shove becomes awesome. But I don't think that would be the case. So I like call. So you're saying like in a in a game where Hero showed down a bluff that people took note of, like a big bluff. You think it's worth going for the three bet all in on this flop? Something like that. Or a game where that would be one, maybe. Another possibility would be a game where it's perceived that you'd be shoving into a pulled range, which doesn't make sense. And therefore, you're most likely to have a bluff. I think that environment exists, especially against maybe like a not amazing and like skeptical of you. Like, let's say you've been beating up on like a pro all day. Then, or like, a, you know, like not a great pro, like a, like a below average 2.5, pro. That, that's the kind of spot that I like this in. All right. Yeah. On to the turn. Do we call? We did. I think we did call. Yeah, we definitely called. Okay. So Hero writes, this made me think he's likely to either be on a strong flush draw, an overpair, or a set. It seems nines is the only realistic possibility for a set. I think he would have been likely to four bet me with most ace, ace, and king, king. Since I'm not blocking ace or king, it's also very possible he could have a strong spade draw or even strong clubs with backdoor equity. With the flush draw seemingly having more combos than the other possibilities, I call to see another card, gather more information, and hope I'm good. I think James and I both think you're in better shape than that. But I also think that if this is really what the range looks like and you are getting flatted by overpairs and like you're never getting flatted by like sixes or fours, it makes the three bet tougher. Like if that range is really that strong. I don't see as much incentive to three bet, personally. The turn was the beautiful deuce of hearts, a dud. Here, right, the only thing I could see this possibility changing is adding a gut shot for some suited wheel hands. Villain quickly checked the quick check. What do you make of a quick check here? A quick check. Um, I don't think it would sway my decision enough, but in general, I think or I'm thinking the quick check might be a little bit more um, value for sure. If he doesn't want to face action, I think he'll check slower a lot of the time. Yeah, I feel the same way, which is not good for us. The quick check is not good. Yeah, I think on this card, I'm betting here a lot when check two, probably just shoving. But when we face the quick check, it strikes me that we're up against like a much more pulled 
range or a range of like, or just like, I think it's mostly like deceptive value and give ups that quickly checks. Yeah. I think we do have some, some reason to go all in against the give ups though. And, um, as our, as the writer pointed out, um, our hero, he might not have all the combos of sixes and fours. So, um, I think we There's not too many hands that we're actually losing to. I think we're just much more. It's a much lower variance strategy, in my opinion, to plan to bluff catch most non-spade rivers rather than go all in ourselves. It is kind of not exactly the size that we want for our hand. Like it would be nice if we had like pot or like anywhere from pot to 60% pot behind, I think, because we'd just be losing a lot less when our, when the villain does have a set. Um, I think Bedfold is, could be really strong here. It's just risky. Like Bedfold 90, let's say 95. Yeah. I like that better on the river. Cause I'm, I still don't, I still think the villain could have, flush draws even though i i would expect them not to check so quickly but i think i'm i'm not confident enough in that read that um yeah that i would that i could fold i like check too and villain said he villain did check back he said i checked back for pot control to avoid the risk of another check raise um and i think that that's smart. It is good to avoid the risk of another check raise. And this is a place where I think a lot of people fail is they're worried, really worried about protection and therefore they're sort of easily to manipulate into betting for protection in instances like this. Yeah. I think it's more important at a different SPR. I think villain could have just sized to be all in on the turn with a lot of range. And that would just make more sense than what villain chose to do. But I think against, like when SPR is much higher and you get this kind of flop check raise, falling for the double check raise is really not good. You don't want to fall for it. It's not to say that there's never a reason to bet after getting check raised. There definitely is sometimes. But I think in an instance where your opponent could be check raising you a lot and you don't want to be check raised, it's really important not to bet. I will say another thing about checking back here at 1 3 is. I think a lot of the time we won't face an all-in bet on the river. So if we like, if we're deciding to call off, we'll lose a lot less money against the sets. Um, and yeah, we, we might get he might turn his spades into a bluff occasionally. So um, agree with both. I think when I think this could have been like a stab with like very little on the flop, and I think that. A lot of those, a lot of those hands are going to play very emotionally. And so think of it like this: you know, they see this little flop bet, and they're like, "This is bullshit." I raise. I have king queen suited. Yeah, you know, I have king queen. Waiting a long diamonds. time for a nice hand like this. Yeah, like this is you know this is nothing. This is probably just ace king. I can just get that to fold, and then you don't fold, and then on the turn they say, "Oh well, that didn't work." I check. I give up. 
and then you check back and the turn lands or the river. Let's see what the river is. The river comes to four diamonds. So kind of a nothing card. If we have king queen, it's like I never win. I guess I'll just bet. Like, because I can't win without betting. You know, it goes like, oh, this is bullshit. Oh, I give up. Oh, I can't win without betting. <laughs> uh, I think that's an extremely common chain of thoughts. So, yeah, I, I think preserving what could be, in some instances, a very high river bluff frequency is worthwhile as a, a factor for checking the turn. So the river comes, the four diamonds, as we said. Hero writes, this creates boats. Uh, but I was behind any hand that becomes a boat here already. Good point. I think what is actually more important here is that this reduces sets. Um, so it should make bluffing a little more difficult for a villain. It's, that's how I'd be thinking about this spot, at least. So here writes, I'm now counterfeiting two pair from 9-7. He means 9-6, maybe? Well, it makes me question what we've seen before, but... That's not too different. Nine, I think 9-7 is much more of a possibility than 9-6, given opponent description. Yeah. Although I would say that, like, call with 9-7 fold sixes is sort of a... Uh, or he writes this seems unlikely anyway. Let's just... We are counting for having two pair. That is a very minor thing that has happened, and that's good. I think it's a pretty big parlay of events, including the board <laughs> being 9-7 and not 9-6 for that to be at all relevant to our decision. Without hesitation, and this is again really shitty for us, Villain quietly bet 150 into the 217 pot. Ooh, quietly. <laughs> Hero comes from an online background and is new to live play, so didn't put much thought into live reads and making this decision. Hero thought for a, a little while about my opponent's range in the spot. Hero still thinks nines, ace, x spades, queens plus were in this range. But Hero is still somewhat skeptical of the possibility of overpairs, considering that they might have played more aggressively pre-flop and probably would not have checked the turn. Considering that there are far more ace, x spades than nines out there and the villain has shown a willingness to make big bluffs, Hero puts in a calling chip. Yeah, I... The villain showing... He did seem like a bit button clicky earlier, triple barreling the second pair. So I don't, I don't hate the call in the river. Like there's just, there's not actually too many hands that we lose to. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see like aces and kings here occasionally, um, and nines, of course, some sixes. But um, I, I don't know. I, I would have a a very hard time folding to an opponent like this. Yeah, it's a, it would be a big fold, big big fold. I think the I think the live reads have me from obvious call never ever fold to or not at never ever fold because I'm about to say that the live reads make me think that it's probably more like break even. Maybe folding is best. I think the combination of fast check on the turn and fast bet on the river, it shows a degree of premeditation. And I think that premeditation plus creativity, 
this is sort of an unorthodox line, is not good. It shifts. I think that's a much more value-heavy proposition. So I think, I do think this was a spot where at the point of the flop check raise, I would range you pretty far ahead of your opponent. And now I think you're, uh, you're beat here quite a bit, which is hard to be beat here quite a bit. There's really not that many hands to beat you. So, you know, I probably call, but I think, uh, I think it's, it's correct with this set of villain behaviors to be much more pessimistic about your chances and potentially, potentially change your behavior. I would maybe, you know, when I really think I'm on the border in this sort of situation, I would maybe talk to my opponent a little bit and try and get my opponent to either make very, uh, I think a really good tell is um, agreeableness versus disagreeableness. I think agreeableness is much more bluff oriented uh, and disagreeableness is going to be more likely to be valuable. So if you uh, say like, are you strong? And your opponent says like, like, come on, man, I'm not going to answer that. That's probably value. Or if they say, or if you say like, would you show me if I fold? And your opponent says like, I mean, yeah, I, okay, yeah, I'll show you if I fold. That kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, I, I think the disagreeable, the disagreeable tell is more strongly correlated with value than the agreeableness is correlated with bluffs. Something else um, that you could try and go for too, I think some rooms have like rules about you can't say it give a specific hand or like most most places but sometimes they're a little bit lax on those but if you can if the if your uh, opponent implies that they could ever have like a weaker hand or not like a really strong hand then they have value like if someone's bluffing they will never do anything that'll decrease like the possible strength of their hand um like in terms of like talking about their hand so um that's another um if you can try and weasel something like that out of them um that would be helpful as well you can say something ridiculous too (laughs) like it's either deuces or threes (laughs) yeah I, i would just say like you're coming from online you're live now. You could, say like, you could say like quads. And in live poker, you have this ability to try and get more information if you think your decision is close. And it's often worth taking it. Although I think sometimes it's, uh, if it's considered very impolite in your game, then it might not be worth doing that in order just to keep the atmosphere positive. But for the most part, I think people enjoy it. And so I would, I would go for it. Anyway, Hero calls, which I think is totally fine. Hero writes, I thought my opponent played the hand well, though I'm a bit confused as to why he didn't continue on the turn without a spade in his hand. I also wonder whether or not he should have called preflop when one, three, three three ranges are so incredibly tight. Do you have sixes? 
I've been going back and forth on my play from a combinatorics and pot-ups perspective. I think I played Anne Fine. The amount of aggression he showed feels pretty rare at these stakes with a nutted hand or without a nutted hand. And I wonder if I should have been making an exploitative fold on the river. Here it continues. I'm fairly new to live poker. I started out winning, but I've busted a few sessions in a row now, and I'm getting frustrated as I'm consistently winning, a consistently winning player at 25 NL online, looking to move to 50 NL soon. I know about variance, of course, but these losses are starting to sting. I'd love to know what adjustments I need to make to be making to be better in these live games, because the players at the table seem substantially less competent than the ones I'm used to, usually up against online. If you guys choose to use this, I'd be happy to come on and talk about the hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, So, sorry. We didn't. So, villain had nines. Yeah. For a flop set and rivered boat. So, I think... I think you need to just be more creative is really what I would say. And... That might not be the answer you're expecting. But I think... One, I, I think... You're, you're sort of, you gotta, all right. <laughs> Here's a way of, of saying what I think about how to be better at live poker when you're already good at online poker. And beating 25 NL is nothing to scoff at. It's not necessarily like world beaters, but it's, it's not the easiest game in the world to beat, especially beating rake. And so the fact that you're moving up in stakes, doing quite well, I think does show that you've accomplished quite a bit as a poker player. And so here's the, here's the framework I'm suggesting. You can approach a hand as an excellent poker player, or you can approach a hand as a genius poker player. And I think excellence might be a better strategy online, but if you want to crush live, you're going to have to approach the game like a genius. What do you think about that, James? an interesting way of putting it um do you think it needs to be elaborated upon um or is it self-explanatory no, i think i think uh i think people will get a lot from that and um <laughs> well just in case let me let me add some detail so the excellent poker player is the one who understands what the book says at least as far as that player interprets the book and can point out like things that other people are doing that are wrong and kind of has like the obvious answer to a lot of things, but in a way that's very consistent and um, defensible. So like, here's what I'm saying. Here's where I'm saying you're playing like a genius. So you said, I also wonder whether or not he should have called preflop with nines when one three three bidding ranges are so incredibly tight, are one three three bidding ranges incredibly tight? Yes. Is folding nines to three bets in one three for this sizing with this SPR probably a good play? Yes. Is it a play anyone makes? No, of course not. No one folds nines. No one will ever fold nines. So don't wonder whether or not he should have called preflop. Like know that he's calling preflop, and know that he knows that you might not just be full or pre-bending these very tight ranges and understand that like when your opponent thinks you have jacks plus an ace king, 
you might not want to just have jacks plus and ace king. And that is true, even though he's playing poorly in response to you having just exactly that range. So I would say just think, try and put yourself really inside the minds of your opponents. And the, the greater degree to which you can do that, the more success you're going to have. And be willing to take a leap and be wrong. And don't worry so much about the rules, like a lot of aggression is always strong. There's a lot of gray area within the rules. And the excellent player follows the rules. The genius player writes their own rules. And I think you want to write your own rules. Spoken like a genius poker player. I try. I try. Yeah, but I, also it's a small sample. So, you know, I wouldn't worry about it. Just keep uh, keep trying to play your best. Keep writing to the show. And you'll be crushing sooner or later. That is extremely likely. All right, James, any last, uh, any final thoughts on this one? No, I think we, uh, we covered it well. Yeah, I guess uh, maybe, uh, oh, I would say um, consider uh, picking up some of uh, one of the, the live tell books from uh, Zachary Elwood. There's a, there's some good stuff in there for sure. If, uh, if you want to become a genius poker player, um, that'll serve you well. Agree. And I know I can be hard on, on the listeners. I don't really hold anything back. I don't try and make you guys feel good. I don't think that's why you're here. And so forgive me if, uh, forgive me if this was at times harsh, but I, I think, uh, you're playing well and therefore you need harsh criticism in order to continue to improve. You're not going to get better if I just say like, yeah, you know, it's a mix. Yeah. Solver would have chosen that sizing at some frequency. So you played well. Love, some tough love from just hands. Tough love, tough love. All right. Thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, remember Patreon exists and we would love your support. It would help us put out even more episodes. Um, our frequency has already increased, I think substantially since instituting Patreon. And who knows, we could get up to a, uh, multiple lessons a week or not lessons, multiple podcasts a week uh, in the right circumstance. Anyways, thanks again for listening and we will talk to you soon.